This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello, hello, and welcome to Plato's Cave. I'm Alexandra Helen Nicholas, filling in for our fearless leader, Thomas Caldwell, this evening. Welcome back. Yay! <laughs> Joining me tonight was Emma Westwood, who just piped up. Hello. That was me. Hello. And our glorious comrade, Cerise Howard. Hello. Uh, a glorious hello right back at you. <laughs> <laughs> we also have with us here in the cave the wonderful Faith Everard and Carl Chapman, keeping things running behind the scenes. Tonight on the show, we're looking at the British gothic horror film The Limehouse Gollum and the sophomore effort from a Girl Walks Home Alone at Night director Annie Lily Amanpour, The Bad Batch. But before we look at these more recent movies, we're going to shake things up a bit format-wise. Anything could happen on Plato's Cave. We're going to start tonight with a much older film that's currently getting a retrospective run at cinemas around town. We're going to talk about the 1927 film Wings, which, amongst a whole bunch of other things I'm sure that we'll touch on shortly, was the first film to ever win a Best Picture Academy Award. Now, I want to privilege this film tonight at the very start of the show for a whole bunch of reasons, one of which is because its star Clara Bow was really one of the first major Hollywood women superstars who suffered at the hands of the kind of sexual harassment and abuse we're seeing very much in the public eye at the moment after a torrent of horrendous allegations against big-time cockroach lord Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein and a growing list of fellow alleged workplace predators. Now, of course, there's a lot of talk about this subject right now, and not just in Hollywood, but all industries, perhaps even your own gentle listener. Things are happening. Discourse is moving. Clara Bow, to me, feels like an important person to talk about right now because she was one of the first big superstars at the phrase that I'm not fond of because I think it underplays the importance and the horrendousness of the harassment, the casting couch. Mm. We'll talk a little bit about Clara Bow shortly, but let's talk about Wings itself. It was made during a fascinating moment in classical Hollywood history for two reasons. It's a blockbuster silent film made during the transition to sound um, to the talkies um, and it was also made during what is widely called the pre-code period before the strict self-enforced censorship under the auspices of the Hayes Code will kick in in full in 1934, a mode of censorship that dominated Hollywood movies until the mid-1950s. Wings follows two small-town boys, Jack, played by Charles Rogers, and David, Richard Arlen, who go off to war as combat pilots, both of whom are in love with city girl, fancy lady Sylvia, uh, played by Jabana Ralston. She loves David but doesn't have the heart to crush Jack, while Jack is too dumb to realise that his neighbour Mara, Mary, played by Clara Bow, is besotted with him. Such action. On top of all that, war things happen, many of them in the air, hence the film's title, and also boobs and men kissing. Let's talk about wings. <laughs> I'm done. Thank you. Good night. That's it. See you later, Alex. Let's, talk about, nice. let's talk about boobs and men kissing in, in 1927 cinema. I, I think that um, uh, <laughs> boobs and men's ki- can I can I start in at another point? Is that yeah, okay? There's a lot of points. Into yeah, this there's amazing a, so film. many points to start. At. I, I think that um, it's interesting this being the first Oscar winner, and when you say the first Oscar winner, this was right at the start of the, the literally the first Oscar ceremony. Um, and I have a I've, with a lot of things, you feel like that over time they develop to be what they are, and the idea of the Oscar film, the Oscar winning film, is something that you could think oh well it's organically being created over time but you watch Wings and you realise it was there right from the start. It set the tone. I mean the Oscars have gone they wander off and they have funny little years where something like Tom Jones in the 60s wins and it's very kooky and strange and everyone forgets about it Um, but 
Wings is very much in the ilk of the Dances with Wolves, the Platoons, the Schindler's List, the Gone with the Winds, the Ben-Hurs, all that sort of thing. Um, Immensely satisfying. It's also interesting to see how filmmaking has come so far yet not really changed that much. The action scenes in this in the air reminded me so much of Dunkirk. Very much I so. I was really, I mean, I wonder if they were, if this film was a direct uh, influence on Christopher I, Nolan. I would yeah. wager it was. And, and Nolan is someone who's famous for um, abstaining from CGI, someone mm-hmm. who really is old school. Uh, but there, there's no more old school cine, cinema um, and filmmaking and especially spectacle filmmaking than in this film where the stars of this film actually were the pilots of the craft you are seeing. Um, yes. You, you see them flying in this with all of the extraordinary uh, aerial shenanigans that, that um, actually, I mean, I, I had my heart in my mouth often watching this because it's it's real. There, mm-hmm. there, there's there's a time that will come before too long when technological advancements were, and, and probably rising insurance costs for the for stars imperiling themselves will stop um, performers doing things as harebrained as these two gorgeous young men do in this film. Even if one of them, I believe, um, Rogers had some uh, training, uh, army training in the Air Force previously. Arlen did too. Arlen, oh, yep, it was Arlen yep. rather than Rogers yeah, then, yeah. perhaps. Um, I knew one of them did. But, I, think, um, I think actually both of them did, but to differing degrees. Arlen's the one yeah. who had the most. And then they yeah. both had to learn how to do this in order mm. to, to be shown doing it. And they really are up in the sky and there are, really are cameras that attached in new and ingenious ways that to me actually just totally uh totally uh, are superior to the way that such scenes are shot here in 2017 the reality of it all is just so much more compelling don't you find yeah. Like yeah. when you watch this great silent film comedian actually perform slapstick that you that the camera movement sometimes can be very minimal in order to make sure you grasp that what you are seeing is actually happening has actually been performed yeah i love that there isn't sleight of hand in this that there really is uh extremely uh, devilish, harebrained, um, thousands of feet above the ground action and actual bombings of um, oh, very convincing-looking European villages. I, I think if you've, never, yeah. if you've never seen a silent film, this I can't honestly can't think of many other better places to start. Like maybe Buster Keaton, but this is yeah, this is extraordinary. Therese, you mentioned the gorgeous men. I want to talk about these gorgeous men <laughs> and and their mutual identification of each other's gorgeousnesses. Oh, it's wow. just a killer. I mean, this it, it often is falsely called the first gay kiss in film or the first same male same sex kiss in film. There may be earlier ones, but certainly without any doubt this was the blockbuster one. Yeah, Let's talk was. about this scene. I mean, it's in watching it in 2017, this film is 90 years old. It's still a beautiful moment and there's no ambiguity. It That's is. what I love about it so much. It's not, oh, they're just really close mates. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's a love they're scene. Love, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it reminds me, I mean, it's more it's more um, uh, suggested in uh, the Lord of the Rings films, but I always found that there was that love between the characters in um, Lord of the Rings as well. It always felt incredibly homoerotic, but this is very, very, very pronounced. It, it actually feels, when you see the the um, the male characters kiss the women in it, it doesn't, they don't sell it as much as they do 
in this in this scene. So I guess it's it is quite provocative. Although I found that there's that gorgeous scene that Alex actually, I believe, probably put did the gif on our social media. Oh my gosh, this amazing, very famous yes. tracking shot in a Paris nightclub, nightclub, I believe, and that has this gorgeous little strangely innocent drunken scene where um, all he can see is bubbles everywhere from the champagne that he's drunk and using this optical effect of literally drawing bubbles on the on yeah. the, the film print and it's um, really strangely sweet. That's gorgeous <laughs> and I note that during that tracking shot too There's there two are women. two women. Yes, you saw are. it too. Oh, you know, I I saw it was, that. I've played that over and over yep. and over again and I thought is it just me? No, there no. There is two women and if you look like a lot of the other couples are bickering yeah, um, but the, 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 the two women are clearly really heavily yeah, into each other. It's really, each other. Yeah. it's really hot. Yeah. And it's and what I love about it is that it's not, woo, look, two women. You, you blink and you miss it. And, and, you know, it's I, just like part of the fabric. It's just this is the way that the world is. Mm-hmm. And it's a nice thing. Clara. And her boobs. That's another big thing about this film. We have we Clara have, didn't we wear have, a bra for most of this film. No, and we, we see her we see yeah. boobage. We yeah. see I can't I'm I could go into my my wide array of synonyms for boobs. <laughs> but I won't do that. I, I think also though you've you've got to think at that time with cinema as well. It's it's you know, it's become acceptable now to have uh, nudity on screen, but for someone to choose to do that at that time, you know, you've got to be really ballsy. She's a, she was a bawdy chick, Clara. I, I find this. I, I look. I'm not up to scratch on on this research as much as I used to be, but I've always found it really fascinating. There are certainly uh, Dean Brandom, who's been on this station before. He he knows a huge amount about this. But as long as there's been moving picture culture there's been dirty pictures. Mm. So, you know, I think the first hardcore film and the first softcore film were made in the same year, 1898. People, as soon as we figured out how to make movies, let's get dirty. So this isn't, again, it's not a first seeing No, but Clara, it's a first big commercial film. Yeah, dirty pillows, yeah. you know, it's not... <laughs> no. I was going to say fun, <laughs> fun bags. Fun bags. <laughs> but but you see, it's full boobs. The girls. You see, you see the ladies. She's got the girls She out. whips the girls mm, out. Mm. But um, even before then, actually, at a, a very early scene where the, the men are being recruited or are, are offering themselves up for recruitment, we see a lot of buttocks. There's there a, are a lot of buttocks. There are a lot of buttocks. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that's actually rarer these days. I mean... Um, yeah, you're right. W- women's bodies have been objectified throughout cinema, men's rather less so. And this isn't exactly objectified. They're just in, just very matter-of-factly in the back of background of a shot, more than once, though. And, and, and you can't exactly fail to notice them. I think we're um, at a stage, too, to see a film like that that's 90 years old... Um, it's the the progression of cinema. I mean, at one stage, to we we would only see people from a different like hundred years ago, and they were in um, maybe really poor photographs or uh, sketched. But to see these characters, especially Charles Buddy Rogers, who's just this like really sweet faced young young man, and to know that he passed away in nineteen ninety nine at the age of ninety four, to look at him and see him interact as a young man and go, he's like young man now. now. I find watching these sort of films, I go through a little bit of an existential crisis, yeah, really. Yeah, too. Clara yeah. Bow is so alive. She's more alive on screen than, than you know, yeah. than half the women that are in this sort of multiplex 
Absolutely, and, you know, and like these are people that are older than our grandparents, you know. Yeah. Well, so there won't be a single person in that film who's alive today. No, yeah. no, no. That always when I when that little penny drops each time, I, I really feel a little yank at the heartstrings. Much as this film actually had yeah. that effect, exactly. Uh, a really number strong. Of times. Look, I think that um, we, you know, we could spend the whole hour, I think, on this really important film and a really fun, really, you know, intriguing movie. But the director William A. Wellman is worth a shout out. He was a hugely important pre-code director, although he worked all the way through. He did um, The Public Enemy. The, yes. The, um, the James Star Cadney, Born, didn't he? I think so. Yeah. He did the first one. Um, yeah, the first one. He did one. a great film called Night Nurse with Barbara Stanwyck, which was a very, very early Clark Gable. It was before Clark Gable was a star, which is, uh, these are really, these are pre-code films. They're pretty dirty. They're pretty mm-hmm. dark. And he did a great film called Safe in Hell, which I write about in my Rape Revenge mm-hmm. book. That's from mm-hmm. 1931. This is all pre-code. So the kind of sexual stuff, that the sexual politics that these films were getting away with, we think of old films as being quite, coy yeah, um, wings no. will change your mind and yeah. i mean not just but it's not there it's just it's just really naturally organic it's not like it's there to shock or to to it just seems so much just a part of the film that's why it just it just kind of unfolds it's it's natural so we i think the post you know the haze code was then made it made it so obvious then the haze code made a thing of it and the thing with the haze code is that it gave directors like hitchcock something to push back against like yes. how do we get around it and I yeah. think that's why classical Hollywood cinema for me is so wonderful because you see people genuinely having to try really hard to sneak this stuff in without the censors. Well, all the queer it. characters, I mean, that yeah, just becomes yeah. sport for queer viewers exactly. to <laughs> recognise all of the it's innuendo sport. that's that, laden throughout classical that Hollywood cinema. That wonderful shot in Casablanca where there's obviously, obviously the sex is happening <laughs> yeah. uh, and there's a lighthouse. Like, there's no lighthouse in the film at all, but there's just this insert phallic symbol. It's just <laughs> glorious. Trains, trains going in tunnels. Yeah. Yeah, and, exactly. and lots of smoking. <laughs> but that's it. While, while this is a pre-code film, there is still moralising within it. Poor old oh, Clara's absolutely. character does get rather punished for an indiscretion that she, well, she wasn't indiscreet. And, but that's rather beautifully woven into the narrative and there's a, a lovely sentimental resolution to all of that without giving too much away. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's still a little bit of, of, of punishment for, what was her character's name? Mary. Uh, Mary, of course. It Mary was. Next yeah. Door, the yeah. girl next door. The virgin. Well, she, I, th- I think with this film as well, though, being a, you know, a big award winner at the start, you can see how this, how it was an award winner because it was really a film that isn't, um, isn't like a theatre piece where you just sit the camera there, which a lot of the early silent films were a little bit like that. This is one where he really works the camera cinematically and you can see that Wellman really understands the new media, the new medium that he's playing with and um, and no doubt was paving the way for people or part of the one of the, the brigade that was paving the way for people to create pure cinematic form Um and and I found to think what people, especially they were quite um, gobsmacking now, as you said, Cerise, to see those um, scenes. And I know that you actually got to see it in the cinema, which is great. Um, uh, but to think of people at the time to, who would have, you know, see bombs be almost on top of the bombs falling down and in the planes, they would never had a, had had that opportunity before. I think this is an official thumbs up. From oh, the absolutely! Game. This great. is a glorious film. Look, there's a special 90th anniversary reissue digital restoration of Wings that's playing in cinemas around town right now, including the classic Cinema Nova, Acme and The Lido. These are mostly ending in the next day or so, so we can't recommend this film enough. If you want to see it on the big screen, get onto it. 
You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. The Limehouse Gollum is a 2016 British film directed by genre filmmaker uh, Juan Carlos Medina, who did the extraordinary Spanish horror film Painless in 2012. Adapted from the 1994 novel Dan Lino and the Limehouse Gollum by acclaimed literary boss man Peter Aykroyd, the film stars Olivia Cooke, Douglas Booth and our boy Bill Nighy. In a story recalling the Jack the Ripper murders, here the Limehouse area of Victorian London is plagued by a serial killer, um people start to believe is, yes, a golem, an enduring figure from Jewish folklore said to be brought to life from clay or mud. Meanwhile, Music Hall star Elizabeth, Olivia Cook, is in court charged with the murder of her husband, but Inspector John Kildare, Nighy, who is investigating the broader murders, believe there is a connection when he discovers Elizabeth's husband is one of the suspects, along with Dan Leno, Booth, George Gissing, and yes, our boy Karl (laughs) Marx. How did you guys go with the Limehouse Golem? I normally don't threaten violence on the, this film, but I loved it, and if you didn't like it, I made glass. <laughs> so just just a little disclaimer up from the front. How'd you guys go? Well, a bit of good fortune for me, at least. <laughs> I, um, I, I really adored this. It's gorgeous, yeah. isn't it? It's totally. This is like one of my big surprises of the year. Yeah, likewise. I, I was very curious about it because there, there's something very familiar about that title, and I, I the penny finally dropped that I knew it from a lyric in Madness's concept album of nearly 10 years ago, <laughs> The Liberty of Norton Folgate and Dan Leno in the Lighthouse Golem. What a explicit shout out. Wow. Is Dan Leno an actual guy? Yeah, yeah. Yes, Dan he, Leno. He was yeah. a musical He guy. was a musical He was right. famous yeah. for being a dame. So the dame figure yes. is a very, um, in, in British pantomime traditions, the dame is the man who dresses as a woman or, of course, as we see in The Limehouse Golem, mm. the woman who dresses as a man. Well, there was a lot of so queerness Dan, in this film. This sure is a very was. queer but film. not Dan Leno. He wasn't one of the, que- the queer characters in it, but it was all, yeah. Well, he's played by Douglas Booth, who um, played, and we will come back to this shortly, he uh, did a glorious performance as the young boy George in the ah, uh, well, and also 2010 film Worried About the Boy. This is the connection. And he played Christopher oh. Isherwood's lover in a, 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 a dramatisation of Christopher Isherwood's time in Berlin recently as well. So he is a, So a, his presence is queer, basically. Yeah, his very presence is, and <laughs> God, those cheekbones are quite He's astonishing. gorgeous, huh? He is extremely gorgeous. <laughs> That's just by the by. Um, yeah, I, uh, there is a, a, a lot of masquerade in this film. I mean, the whole film is about appearances not being as they seem and with a Holmesian mystery and uh, proto-Jack the Ripper sort of goings-on. And Karl Marx. All into, and Karl Marx. Yeah, these, these, this great, um, uh, these great historical figures woven into an extremely convincingly squalid uh, representation of uh, sort of mid to late era Victorian London that that um, it just looks so miserable and yet to know that many of these very distinguished gentlemen of, of letters were inhabiting such squalid places actually gives me hope for my own career in letters because <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I haven't sung quite that low yet, but... Uh, they, uh, Good to hear. Yeah, yeah. Good work, Cerise. Yeah. I only see you in lovely places like in here. Yeah. Moving on. <laughs> um, but I, I felt that this so compellingly created a universe that was at once familiar and also a little bit fantastical because, I mean, for, for me, I'm, I, I was also drawn to this because the Golem is something very much associated with Prague, in fact, and a, a city to which I feel an unusually strong draw and um, affection. And to do with particular um, Jewish uh, folklore, um, which of course does come up in this film, but it's just displaced to London, but in a very interesting way. But everything in this is sleight of hand and uh, you know, all of those other 
Victorian era located dramas of recent years to do with magicians I was reminded of watching this though I think this is better than The Illusionist or The Prestige yeah. by some margin it's interesting that the film that this reminded me of the most this is the film that I wanted uh, Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak to be uh-huh. I, yeah. This is that when I was watching, I, I didn't expect anything from the Limehouse Golem, and and this is the feeling of of genuine surprise, and and um, the, the the kind of transgressions in this film or the perversity in this film that it was just dealt with in a much more subtle, intelligent way, and that was what I expected of Crimson Peak, and I I, I, I love that director, but I didn't really get it from. Crimson no, that Peak. wound up being really cartoonish. Yeah, yeah, this is, is way more subtle. It is, and there's certainly an air of artifice about aspects of it, especially these crime scenes and this wonderful strategy it takes of imagining the various possible perpetrators of these crimes actually performing the acts and. Um, I think that's actually a really nice strategy. I'm not sure if I've quite seen that before. Could could you think of a, a similar? Uh, I, I I was struck by it. Just, As in the, the having the 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 supposed the perpetrators playing out the yeah. scene of the the possible yeah. perpetrators. Yes. No, I can't think of anything like that no, either. Really definitely maybe the done. Thin Blue Line by Errol Morris, like this kind of playing mm. with recreations yeah. is actually a very you know certainly not stylistically mm. as that yeah, that film has. Beautiful. Yeah. He's a great director. His first film, Painless. I haven't um, seen that. It wasn't that well known here, but I'm, I have a minor obsession with Spanish horror. Yes. Um, and it was one of those that. one of those films that it was. Like this is this is a real it's so great scene because to me this was like a very Spanish film. It's interesting that you've drawn that line with Prague, but you know, and it's such a British story. But to me, it's so Spanish. Like well, it's so such a British mm, cast, yeah. and all top notch, and Bill Nye is in tremendous form. It's quality. It's yeah. top shelf Nye. I don't know uh, whether everyone noticed, but the very 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 last moment of the credits has a um, dedication Alan, to Alan Rickman. It was meant to be Alan yes, Rickman because he yeah. was meant to play that. Yeah, the Bill credits, Nye role. The credits yeah. to this film are strange. Is a, the woman who wrote the screenplay, and it's a kicker of a screenplay. It's mm. really nuanced and really smart. Jane it's Goldman. Jane Goldman, yeah. who did the recent sexual assault spy flop, Kingsman Golden Circle, that we <laughs> shit-canned a few weeks ago. But you Partic- took the blow for me. I didn't get to see it. <laughs> particularly, the writing was appalling. It's like I'm genuinely surprised that the same woman that wrote that wrote this because you would never pick it. But I mean, this is just, an adaptation, isn't it, from a very yep, highly regarded yes. book by yep, Peter yep. Ackroyd? Ackroyd, yeah. Yep, which yep, I'm yep. now dying to read. Yes, yes. Uh, I think um, this is really dense, this film. I mean, there's a lot of... She's written the hell out of it because there's yeah. a lot going on and in order to jam it into that time. Um, but I actually watched it a second time. I showed it to someone who I knew was a great Sherlock Holmes fan because I thought he'd really appreciate it, and he did. So I think if anyone sort of enjoys that aesthetic, then this film has a lot to serve up. I, it, but in its own unique way, I mean, it's definitely a green film, like literally a green film. I don't know whether that has anything to do with it being called Limehouse, although lime is white, isn't it? So, but the <laughs> but lime it's it's has pools of green right right throughout it, and um, I actually picked up a lot on watching it a second time. I would seeing, love to revisit yeah. this film because I just I thought Olivia Cook was superb. She was she, excellent. She's got a bit of horror form. I knew that I knew her from somewhere. She was in a great film called The Quiet Ones from 2014, and um, uh, Ouija from 2014 as well. She's I think she's in Bates Hotel. She's lined up to do the new Spielberg film. She's starring in Ready Player One, which doesn't sound good. So I hope that it's not R.I.P. the career of Olivia Cook. Oh, surely not. Because she was so good no, in this. No, she's she was so in this. good in this. Yeah, she, hopefully I just not. Remember the other thing this reminded me of, and it's the adaptations. I think they've typically been made for TV, and I forget the author's 
names so you'll have to remind me but uh, tipping the velvet um tip, oh sarah uh, sarah waters sarah waters. Yeah. yeah it's had a sarah waters-esque vibe about it too not least for the queerness that no you're been, so right and i'm Tipping the Velvet. Fingersmith. And, um, Fingers, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. That's such a perfect... There's a lovely little conversation between Dan Lino and Elizabeth where he asks her if she likes girls. Mm. Yes. And it's, it was just such a good... I think in, in the hands of any of a lot of other filmmakers or actors or writers, it just could have been gross. It could have been a really grotesque moment. Yeah. But it's just this beautiful, charming, quiet moment. I, I just... I love how subtle this film is. And you're totally right. It does recall that sort of genteel there's a victoriana there is a lot of unspoken. But a different story of it you know yeah. even this is even though this is a dialogue heavy film and it, it rollicks along it's there's a lot that is unspoken about it and even um it, unspoken within it i guess and even um watching it a second time i came out thinking oh maybe i'm looking at this character another way maybe this character was actually more complicit in it than i realize even though they weren't implicated in the end so it's really nice to watch something and have it play out in a number of different ways even the Bill Nye character I think we can say it because it's set up re, it's said subtly up front his queerness is not overtly expressed but it is it, it is there in it and I think that was really nice I picked up more of the the um, the insinuations um, watching it a second time in fact it's right throughout the film that I didn't actually pick up the first time yeah the only part of it that didn't convince me but it was still utterly compelling was mm. the music hall itself it was entirely too grand um, <laughs> given I the rabble that scenes. was uh, in attendance yes. yeah, it was so spectacular but, I'm, um, I'm, I loved it I'm glad that you've mentioned that Lime House Golem is currently on limited release through Transmission Films. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. The Bad Batch is the much-anticipated follow-up to Anna-Lily Amapur's earth-shaking debut, A Girl Walks Home at Night Alone, from 2014. The Bad Batch follows Arlen, played by actor, model and fashion designer Suki Waterhouse, who finds herself condemned to an unnamed, fenced-off, isolated, desert-like Texan nowhere region, which effectively acts as a prison, where people considered lawbreakers are tattooed, dumped and left to fend for themselves. This is a lawless, cannibal-infested badlands again. Here she finds allies and enemies, amongst them characters played by Jason Momoa. Did I mispronounce his name? Is it Moana? Is it Mo- I'm not Mo- sure. Mo- Mo- I've got to look it um, up. Aquaman. Aquaman. Um, Giovanni Ribisi, Keanu Reeves, and even a small cameo as a hermit by Jim Carrey as she fights to survive. A trickier task than it might have been after she literally loses an arm and a leg to golf cart riding cannibals in the film's first 10 minutes. I, um, I thought that was ballsy. I I've been I, I published I published my Give first, it something. Give I published it something. my first piece of film criticism in 2003. So I'm coming up to my 15 mom. years that I've been developing some kind of lexicon or vocabulary with which to speak about the nuances of the cinematic arts in precise detail and I've, all I've got on the bad batch is that it was dog shit. <laughs> I regret watching this film. Oh, really? And I loved A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Emma, you were... Cerise dodged a bullet, in my opinion. You missed this one. You get to remember A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night for the beauty that it was, the yeah. eloquent poetry. 
Emma, you're not so... I just think harsh as I am. I'm not quite as harsh, maybe because I wasn't quite as enamoured with A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. I th- I enjoyed it. I thought that's it was a, a really great good, film. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. In that that's a pretty... Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And I think that that film, um, I think because it came from a very new standpoint, it was present, presenting a lot of fresh stuff that people hadn't seen before, that there is an overall um, view of that film that it is actually better than it is, to be totally honest. I think that she That has... should almost be a genre of films. Of yes. Films of people. It's like some kind of, um, like some kind of drug has been released. Oh, like, because, people you know, just yeah, it's, it, it was fresh. And, you know, to yeah. the idea that of excitement. having something... Fr- yeah, yeah is, just is, something different. It's really exciting. It releases dopamine and a whole lot of things in the brain. So we all go a little bit crazy. And uh, and I think that's what that, that film did. But um, I could see in that film, she has... She sort of silos her characters. They're not very good at... Um, uh, emotional uh, exchange and while that did work well in A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night in this film it just fell really really flat um, it's I, like I said, I felt that it was quite gutsy to um, mutilate your lead character in such a way um, right from uh, within the first 10 minutes. And in fact, I thought the p- first 10 minutes were excellent. The mood was great and she uses music once again in a really wonderful fashion. But then it kind of went nowhere absolutely nowhere um, and it amounted to nothing. I have this dialogue where I'm like, you know, I've just seen this a thousand times before. Like this is like, this is Fury Fury Road if you like less subtext. Like mm. it's just like I get it, Trump's building a, a wall, we, we, we get it. Like it's so, and then I think, you know, she's playing off these films that are just so obvious but it's like, oh, no, but that's. You know, the, the the reply to that is, yeah, but I'm kind of messing with it. It's like, yeah, no, you're not. No, you're not. It's Burning Man. You're not, you're it was Burning Man Festival. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I just <laughs> thought this was a diabolical misfire. And I, I, I really admire that she wanted to do something really different mm. after. I mean, there must have been an extraordinary amount of pressure on her after the success of her first film. And to do something this different, um, like I, I get that she wanted to kind of break out of that. Um, mm, mm. But I just, um, this is just a dude bro film. But it's it's also I'm, I'm not really very shocked. well written. And, no, and, I think it's lazy. Yeah. I think it's mm. thoughtless. Um, there was a huge, I won't go into details here, but there was a huge brouhaha about uh, a Q&A of this film um, where an audience member raised a question about race, which I genuinely think is a really valid question in relation to the fake of one particular character in this film. Um, I thought that it was handled badly by the director who, uh, not not specifically in, in, in person, it sounds like she gave a clear answer, but um, it turned into a kind of Twitter fight and it just, mm. just bad PR, like just a bit of a meltdown. Yeah. And I'm really, I was really surprised. Um, this is just, it's a Vice film. And to me, that was the red flag. Like the other Vice film that I think of off the top of my head was Ty West's The Sacrament, which came out in 2013. Again, another director I'm, I think is has had good moments, but that is just one of the most inadvertent right-wing films I've ever seen. I found it so offensive and so stupid and just like capital D, capital B, dude bro. Yeah. Um, This is like, this is just, I mean, this makes... The, every part of me that has problems with Tarantino was amplified with the Bad Batch. Really, yeah. It, it's interesting because the, the Keanu Reeves character was um, sort of set up as being the strangely, I don't know, Jim Jones kind of character. And and this and he had um, there's one case where um, Arlene Arlen, 
the character of Arlen has an exchange with him, which I think had to was sort of a, expected to be the heart of the film in some way. That was the sort of... He had this monologue that um, was meant to be sinister and telling... I don't know, all those sort of things. And I actually cannot tell you what it was. I vagued no. out. I, I totally just, vagued out. The performances in this film I thought were generally across the board quite weak. I felt like Keanu Reeves, and, and it chills me to say this, but it felt like he was dialing it in. I think Suki Waterhouse, I, I just, I can't remember what she looks like. Yeah. Like it was just such a forgettable... She looks like J-Lo, a young J-Lo. <laughs> I thought that in a um, number of points in the film. She just made no impact on me. I think yeah. one of the bigger questions, I guess, around this is... And this is, I think, the interesting thing that I take from this film is that with this whole women in film movement, you know, we're trying to get women, women's voices heard, women to make more films. We're not really... There is this risk, I think, that we beatify films yeah. made by women, that it's almost a kind of um, regressive thing to say, well, actually, a woman made a film and it's a bit garbage. And I, I don't think that helps. Like, mm-hmm. I, I would... I hope that she makes more films. I think she's got a winner and maybe not so much of a winner on her I list. Mean, like, I, I would... I, I think this film is garbage I think it's hot garbage but I think her first film was great and I want he hear her voice more like I'm I'm the jury is still out on her as a filmmaker is, is that what yeah. went wrong with this one that there was none of the Iranianness of the first oh, film. Oh, well, no, I no mean, Iranianness at all. Because that was so much of what was no, no. key to the freshness of A Girl Walks Home, that there was all this very... Well, it was in Farsi, yeah. but it was set in America and it was an American production. Yeah. Um, and it's about um, a Muslim girl, but yet yeah, n- none of um, none of that is... Yeah, and it doesn't play with any of that iconography and no, how... I mean, the, a, a Girl Walks Home had a lot of fun with certain imagery which is familiar from uh, Islamic cultures and how that might um, just semi-coincidentally match some imagery from horror films and it no, worked. No. And from R- returning to like my undergraduate auteur theory studies, I, do, I think if you saw A Girl Walks Home and a bad, uh, The Bad Batch and you didn't know who directed them, I don't think you would ever pick them. Emma, you've got a different... You, you drew parallels? I or? do. Because to me there was just zero crossover. I, I, I do see it. I actually think that the, the weaknesses of the first film are amplified in this one. That's really interesting because maybe yeah. I'm just a little bit, you know, rose-tinted about the first one for the reasons that you just said, Cerise. I think that like, it's her... She has to own it. I think it's really... It comes out in her direction in this one and I think they need... I, I can understand why she wanted to move away from what was shown in the first film. I mean, I, I think that the freshness of that, I applaud her for wanting to do something different yeah, rather than too. stomp on me her too. own her own freshness rather than just ride, you know, ride that bandwagon for as much as she can. But um, I I feel that this film where that the, the characters, there was just not a lot of, uh, the emotion was completely lost in this. And, and that was the problem. This is where we, I'd like to see a third film like you, Alex, and see how it plays out. The jury's out. out. Yeah, the jury's exactly. out. The Bad Batch is now available available to view on Netflix. The Limehouse Golem is on limited release through Transmission Films. And Too limited. <laughs> Too limited. Too cinemas all over this fine city. And the digital restoration of the 1927 silent film Wings to mark its 90th anniversary. You can catch in the next day or so at cinemas including the classic Cinema Nova, Acme and The Lido. But be quick, only a couple of screenings left on that one. That's all we have time for tonight on Plato's Cave. Thank you to my co-hosts Cerise Howard and Emma Westwood. Carl Chapman behind the desk and Faith Everard, who does our podcast magic. We'll be all back next week to discuss the perils of social media, 60s pop, pop art, queer Japanese cinema, and a Mexican sex squid. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.